Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am Paula de la Cruz Fernandez, a host of the Economic and Business History Channel. Today, I'm here with Professor Simon Bill. Hello, Simon. Hello. Professor Bill is visiting professor of Australian studies at Harvard University this year, uh, so he's actually finishing up that position. He's also Senior Professor of Economic and Business History at the University of Wollongong in Australia. Today, we are discussing his latest book with David Merritt, International Business in Australia Before World War I, Shaping a Multinational Economy. Professor Will has a very long CV and expertise in different topics of economic and business history. Before talking about the book, can you tell us about this background and about your education and other works that you think our audience could read and know about? Yes, thank you, Paula. I'd be very happy to do that. Um, So I'm uh, originally British and um, I um, grew up in London and took my both my degrees from University College London in history departments. So in some ways, I'm more in a history background than I am in an economics background, but I've certainly tried to sort of uh, hone my economics and statistical skills over the years. And when I started out in postgraduate work, I was mostly interested in the shipping and transport industries of Europe, and that sustained me for quite a while. In the late 80s, I had migrated first to New Zealand and then to Australia, and therefore became quite interested in what the story or the economic history of those countries is and the access to local archives and documents, obviously. Uh, And so quite a lot of my work, while it's been international in context, has focused on the Australian economic and business history experience. And I think if there's a sort of unifying theme is to understand the development of a country that's been a resource-based economy. In other words, it's successfully modernized but it's done it mostly through primary industries such as pastoralism and mining and so forth and that's of interest to economic historians and economists because it's often assumed that unless you go through a process of industrialization you don't really become a modern economy but we know there are exceptions to that and so that is a sort of theme that's worked its way through much of my work including the the current book uh, and also comparative work I've done for example with uh, Norway to understand the relative success of those two countries and some with work on uh, Argentina and New Zealand and, and South Africa and so forth. So my current projects is the, first of all, this business uh, understanding of uh, international business in Australia before World War One, and there's going to be a subsequent book, we hope, uh, of the 20th century. Uh, I also work on um, several other projects. One is about the growth of capital markets and shareholding in Australia. Uh, Another one is about the growth of the trade in natural history specimens, which is a bit different, but it is Australian-based and it is an international trade and international business type of topic as well. So those sort of three themes are what I do at the moment. When I migrated from from the UK, uh, University of Auckland for two years, 
and then to Australia at uh, Cambridge Australian National University for 10 years. And I've since been at Wollongong, which is a regional university south of Sydney, for the last 20 years. And I'm about to go back there next week. <laughs> right. Wonderful. So let's talk about that context that makes Australia uh, perhaps different um, from other examples of becoming modern, a modern economy. So in the introduction, you explained how before World War I, uh, the economic and political context of Australia was heavily shaped by its connections to the British Empire. But you also mentioned and contribute uh, that it was through this connections that international trade, migration and investment was also a very big part of um, Australian economy and how it developed. Could you tell us a bit more about this context? Sure. Australia is a, still is a, a remotely located country uh, and that has in many ways shaped the experience of economic and business development. So it certainly shaped um, what we call tyranny of distance is a, a phrase developed by an Australian historian called Geoffrey Blaney. And, you know, the, the, the phrase itself is fairly self-explanatory. Some of the challenges of economics, business, politics or whatever from being distantly located. And that in some ways has changed over two centuries because of vast improvements in transport and communications. But it has certainly from a business context meant a, a really major challenge in managing multinational enterprises. And that's a, a theme that comes through the book. But despite that distance, despite those challenges, Australia has always been a, a highly internationalized economy. So if you look at figures on openness, you know, percentage of, of foreign trade represented uh, in relation to GDP or investment or migration, it's always been heavily internationalized. And, you know, then it comes to our story of what is what what happens to international business and the traditional story is that there's very little multinational business in Australia before 1914 and we certainly know the 20th century the US companies arrive in the 20s and 30s and then we've got European companies and more recently Japanese and Korean Chinese and so forth and the assumption was for a long time that the nature of economic development in Australia while drawing on uh, overseas exports was predominantly if you like domestic entrepreneurship that was driving it and that was very little evidence of uh, overseas business. And the, the, the major thing that we've been trying to uh, argue in this book is that that is incorrect, that in fact, multinational enterprises have been a key part of understanding the nature of Australian economic development before 1914. Wonderful. Yeah, and that's actually in itself a very interesting issue with the idea of um, multinationals working within empire with yeah within the context of empire and that's also why australia is a good case uh to study this relationship between multinationals and um, i mean business and empire which i actually took a class uh in graduate school and it was very interesting interesting but we did not um study australia <laughs> so but um so i'm i'm happy i i did i did this time so i think that also your book is important because of the insights into how host economies in the first era of globalization perform, right? This time, uh, the first era of globalization is also, uh, it's not very easy in terms of to find uh, also sources about this time in terms of, uh, in relation to foreign companies, for example. But also, I, wa I was wondering how important this book is to be able to compare with other regions like Latin America, which I am perhaps more familiar with, and the work of multinationals in, this, in these regions. So 
Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about what political context was Australia in, right? This dominions, self-governing dominions, and how that worked with foreign operations of British multinationals, but also other multinationals? Yeah, look, really good question. And I think um, I didn't <laughs> quite get to that when you asked me earlier about empire. So I should expand on that a bit. So um, as as anyone would know, Australia was part of the British Empire. It's moved away from empire. It's been a gradual process. And of course, today, the uh, the British monarchy is still technically head of state, although it doesn't actually mean very much in practice. Um 1788 is the is the is the arrival of the first uh, uh, convict vessels and it's a convict colony to begin with. Uh, the biggest change is the 1850s. Responsible government is is given so you know some sense of decentralised political responsibility from the 1850s, and then you get federation in 1901, which brings different colonies together as a single country. Um, so so uh, and and that. Uh, then it all changes more in the 20th century. So it's clear that, at least in the early years, that that the British imperial connection was a key aspect of economic and business development, including uh, foreign firms. So as you know from the book, I've, I've got this a split between pre-1870 and post-1870. And the pre-1870 is predominantly, probably 95% of British companies. Uh, and this changes after 1870 when we get, whilst there's still a majority of British companies, there are more companies coming from other parts of the world, including, you know, North America and Europe and 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 a few from, from Asia. Uh, so so that, that the role of empire is important. It's changing. Britain is becoming less important uh, by the later 19th century and into the 20th century. How does it compare with um, experiences of Latin American countries? Obviously, there are slightly different stories of empire and imperial influence as you look at, across different countries. And this plays out in in different ways. I think that um, for Britain, the types of investment that occurred are somewhat different than you would get, say, in Argentina. I'm always struck by, uh, and I, you know, uh, uh, Andrea and I have, you know, compared notes and company sizes, number of companies from different countries, and 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 those interesting comparisons between Britain and Argentina. Um, I think what you find is that the pattern of investment is quite different. Um, there is um, the railway companies in Australia were publicly owned by the colonial governments and then the state government, and that's still the case today. Whereas one of the biggest sources of foreign direct investment going into Argentina in the 19th century was in those massive Argentinian railway companies, and that that just doesn't happen in Australia. What happens there is that the colonial governments raise uh, loans on the English Stock Exchange to fund the infrastructure and building those railways. And those are few early privately owned railways. It's predominantly a, um, uh, a public owned system. And that is quite interesting in other ways as well, because it influences the way that multinationals can behave in Australia. They don't comply. They don't control the supply chain. The, go- the colonial governments do, and they manipulate freight rates and they develop policy in, a, in an appropriate way. So I think you know, one of the arguments of the book is also that multinationalism in Australia is contested. It's contested by quite strong local firms. It's also contested by the colonial governments and their control of infrastructure. And I think it's fair to say that that is a difference between Australian experience and Latin American experience. In terms of other types of industries and sectors, another difference is the uh, really strong importance of the mining industry as a source of foreign investment in Australia. Gold mining is the obvious one, but also coal and iron 
tin and a, a, a silver, so so quite a lot. Looking, you know, when we compared the figures for Argentina and Australia, it was clear that mining played much lesser role in foreign investment in Argentina than it did in Australia. I guess that just reflects the nature of the natural resource industry. Where there are similarities are in obviously some of the um, pastoral industries such as beef and wool and so forth. So Australia, Argentina, uh, Uruguay, South Africa, New Zealand are the big wool producers and exporters in the 19th and the 20th century. There are some differences in the way that wool is marketed between the countries and the types of companies that, that, that take wool and export it overseas. But um, those, those are the similarities. So I think, I think sector-wise, those similarities and differences I think the emphasis play out in different ways as well in what I've tried to explain there. Right. And you also talk about the lack of risk uh, for British firms, right, um, because of this context, which I think is, um, but those are very interesting and, and important points of difference. Um, <clears throat> what about, uh, so before 1870s, what was the percentage of British uh, multinationals in? About 95%, something like that. So predominantly, I think there were a couple of French and German ones, but they were predominantly British and they were, I mean, obviously mining companies, but also transport companies, banks, insurance and, and so forth. And the fact that the other, that there were only 5% of other nationalities, why why was that? Is, it, is there um, legislation or regulations that, did not allow other multinationals to operate or other foreign um, firms to operate? Or what was the... No, I don't think there were any, any formal rules. I think it was just that it was effect- effectively a British colony and there weren't large uh, settlement groups of other nationalities. You do gradually get the growth of uh, uh, French uh, expa- uh, uh, French um, diaspora groups and German diaspora groups. Uh, I mean, particularly amongst the wool wool buyers, a lot of the wool buyers by the late nineteenth century are French. They're coming from that um, <clears throat> French Belgian region, uh, uh, which is, of course was a big wool manufacturing area. So they'd send their wool buyers out to Australia. It actually, as companies, the company constituted probably one office with a couple of people in, but you know, <laughs> that's a multinational effectively. So that's by the, the, the later nineteenth century. That's after mostly after eighteen seventy, as the wool market shifts from Europe to to Australia. Um, but yeah, there's no there's no formal reason. It's just a, a British settler colony, and you know, after eighteen seventy, then you gradually get sort of uh, waves of of I guess entrepreneurs and settlers coming from other parts of Europe and and uh, parts of the world. Right. Uh, <clears throat> so, when this come, these other nationalities come. Can you tell us about what you know? What's the development there? What's the evolution or the history there? When when other nationalities besides British become important investors? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So, so just to sort of the, the French and German story, I think I sort of t- uh, told to some degree there. So that that and maybe just a bit more background there. That in the mid nineteenth century, most uh, wool was sold in European markets, particularly in London and and in co- on continental Europe as well. Um, and then by the later nineteenth century, that centre of wool sales shifts from the sort of, if you like, the, the purchasing countries to the supplying countries. So more and more the wool is bought before it's exported overseas. Australia is the largest 
but also New Zealand and I mentioned Latin American, South African countries. So gradually there's that shift. And as the centre and, and white shifts is complicated, but it's partly about better shipping services, it's, it's partly about the demands of local wool producers to sell their wool more quickly and, and so forth. Um, but as that shift occurs, um, then um, French and German wool buyers need to decide what to do. Do they want to attend the wool sales, which is an open cry wool auction, or do they just want to accept wool that is bought on their behalf, if you like, and then shipped across the world to France and Germany? And one of the, I have a bit of a, a thing about wool, I've written quite a bit about wool, so if the detail's too too long, you can stop me. But basically, wool is a very heterogeneous product, and um, even today, a lot of wool is sold by open cry auction rather than electronically because the buyers actually want to inspect the wool before the sale. This is particularly for merino wool. I mean, Australia's thing has always been the sale of very high-quality merino wool that ends up in Italian suits and, and things like that. So for the buyers, it's not a matter of buying sort of okay wool to make into a carpet or a rug or a shawl or whatever. It is you've got to get the absolutely correct thickness and sort of you know, very, very tiny millionth of a millionth of an inch or whatever it is, and the stretchiness and the and the right feel to it and so forth. So the French and the German wool buyers, Massurel Fee, who I mentioned several times in the book, were a big French uh, wool buyer. They wanted to be there. They wanted to see the wool that they would buy. And the only way that they could do that was to set up business. And they set up business uh, essentially where the wool was sold in Australia, which is basically the, the major capital city ports, Sydney, Melbourne to a lesser degree, Adelaide, Brisbane and Perth, and then the wool, of course, gets shipped straight out the port to, to Europe or, or wherever. But they could be there, they could inspect it, and they know exactly what they were buying. So it's quite interesting that the change in the location of the wool market and also the demands of this particular commodity. I mean, before I started wool, to me, wool was just wool, but clearly wool is not just wool. Wool is, is a very, very heterogeneous and sort of specific product. Uh, so so that's the story of the French and the German wool buyers. There are also other ones. There are some some Italian wool buyers. There are some Japanese, so some of the Japanese trading companies that were, of course, as we know, very sort of diverse and were manufacturers as well as traders. Um, Mitsui and Kanamatsu in particular were uh, operating out of offices in Sydney and Melbourne by the 1890s. So these, these, these so-called multinationals in the wool industry were, in fact, just tiny little businesses you know they would have an office they would have a couple of people there and so forth but the people they had there were absolutely critical because the ability to look at and make a judgment about the quality of wool was such a specialist skill that you weren't just sending somebody out there to have a look at the wool before it was bought it's somebody who really knew what to bid on which which lots they wanted to bid on which they didn't so these are you know part of the book as i was saying earlier is about trying to understand why there were in fact a lot of multinationals in australia before 1914 when everyone assumed there wasn't and one of the three reasons for that is that these small unincorporated companies operating firms not really companies operating out of uh, you know a little office in collins streets uh, melbourne or something like that were in, were technically uh, multinationals and and sort of other papers have tried to estimate how many there were and, you know it's 50 60 or more there are there are wool trade directories where you can, you can see the addresses of these companies and they advertise the type of wool that they're interested in and what their business overseas was and so forth. So that's a big st uh, part of the story, the French and German, etc. wool buyers. But the other parts are also um, American firms uh, coming in early on. Uh, and um, 
they, um, I mean, I think, you know, I agree with the type of approach that, that Mira Wilkins has generated in her books, which is really the American firms that went overseas initially focused on the near markets, the European markets and Canada and to some degree Latin America. But by the later 19th century, they were looking further afield, you know, where else can we can we market, sell, produce our products out where? And Australia was an important market to look for. And the Australian market was quite interesting in that the sort of the fun the fun fact of 19th century Australian history is that Australia appears to have had the highest income per capita of any country that we know about. Uh, you know, which is I didn't realise that for 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 sure. So that was good. So, you know, multinationals, manufacturers say, okay, we can sell our stuff here, whether it be, you know, cars or sewing machines or whatever. Um, but the market was very small. So, you know, and also very distant. So what do you do? You've got, you know, contrasting things. A small market suggests, well, exports might be the better thing to do. Like just sell a few luxuries there. It's a long distance as well. And so quite a few of these uh, multinational manufacturers that set up American ones in particular in the late 19th century are there as sales and marketing branches. They're not actually producing goods. Now, you know, okay, how do we define a multinational again? And, uh, you know, it seems to be we normally say it's a company that has income generating assets in more than one nation. And so if you've got a sales branch, a marketing branch and so forth, then that is a form of multinational, even if there's not local production. And so it, I think from the book, we estimate that something like two-thirds of the manufacturing uh, multinationals are not actually producing in Australia until after the First World War. And, you know, if we, if we you know, we're, we're going in to look at the, the 20th century experience in the, in, the, in, the, in the coming book, and uh, it's the expanding size of the market, it's improving transportation, and it's tariffs. All of those things are big factors in multinational design to set up in Australia after 1918. And and you'll know that some of them make these decisions at different points. Some of them do start producing before 1940. Some of them, as we know, are not there till the 1950s. Uh, so uh, uh, so so that's the second the second group of uh, multinationals that I think uh, uh, are, are there as well as the French and German, the, the American. Uh, American manufacturing companies. Um, and I think those are the two main types. The others are really the, the range of British companies, particularly the, the ship, shipping, I think, is a fairly important thing. That's an industry that interests me as well. You've obviously got the growth of steam shipping in the late 19th century, the growth of the ocean trades, the growth of uh, freight markets and so forth, all of which facilitate better long-distance uh, shipping and trading. So you get you know, the most obvious ones like P&O coming to Australia, but also uh, uh, Swedish, French, German lines, Messagerie Maritime, for example, and the, some of the German ones, um, the Hamburg lines. Uh, uh, so they're all, it raises another interesting question uh, that is one that we always try to work out how do you define a multinational? Are shipping lines multinationals or not? And uh, Obviously, some sometimes it's just an occasional visit to Australia. Well, that doesn't constitute a multinational. But where we find there are regular lines, and they either have their local port offices or they have a regular agent or so forth, we sort of included those as multinationals. So something like P&O um, or Massage Maritime, uh, we've defined those as multinationals in our group as well. It is fascinating to um, start looking at all these 
all the maps we can create tracing or you know all these commercial networks and what what you were talking about um wall that was that it's really fascinating story i think also also what's important that you just mentioned is the kind of bringing up the importance of marketing as part of multinational business and global business history because these were part of bigger organizations right so the case of singer they only had five um international factories by 1900s right in um great britain and and Russia and but they had marketing operations in more than 20 countries uh, so they were already I mean on that side making those connections as well and um, so that's certainly something I, I very much enjoy and uh, in this kind of discussion about the history of the multinational and how how does it um, I mean its origins and also the format that you say this is smaller, Part, smaller companies, right? Smaller incorporated organizations in Australia, but they were working on behalf of other nationalities, right? Other businesses. So certainly, um, I found the chapter which you talk about the uh, the American multinationals uh, these early years of American multinationals in Australia. That uh, it's called "Hidden from View: The Multinational Enterprise in Colonial Australia." Um, it is very interesting and it is very useful to fill in these gaps about um, multinationals in the first era of globalization, how they worked, where they were, and. Um, you taught upon this uh, concept of uh, tyranny of distance, um, which if you want to tell us more about, that would be great. But also um, you talk about the concept of migrating multinationals, where, you know, how firms shifted uh, their place of registration to minimize regulatory barriers or political risks and how this worked in Australia. You do, you, you mentioned so many uh, companies in your book, um, and but I would love to hear uh, some cases, some uh, examples, like you, you talk about General Electric and how um, it works in Australia with Australian General Electric, the British American Tobacco Company, and um, of course you, you mentioned Singer, so if you want to say something about those cases as well. Yep. No, no, very happy to. Um, some of which I know more about than others, and I certainly don't know as much about Singer as you do. <laughs> but I mean, you might have been interested to see in the book that, I mean, the whole th- thing about marketing as a value add rather than just production is is really fascinating. I think, uh, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the, it's not till 1959, I think, that Singer first manufactures in Australia. And yet you, you probably would have seen the pictures in the book of some of the marketing methods that they had they had sewing machines on carts in outback queensland and so forth and you know this is it's quite remarkable because um one of the uh one of the, another fun fact about australia which people often don't know and i didn't know until i came to australia was that most of the population is located in the cities and so we tend to think of australia as you know this great sort of you know the bush and so forth and, and primary industries but Today, and the figures increased over the course of the 20th century, today 70 or 80% or more of the population lives in, you know, the major cities, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. Um, And so that was the case in the 19th century as well. Uh, And so you can understand that most multinationals would have focused their marketing efforts on the city, which I'm sure Singer did. But the fact that they were there in the outback, miles from the closest city, I mean, I think Charleroi, I think was the one where there's on the cart and in the middle of a field somewhere. I mean, that's a long way out and it's difficult to get to. 
you know, this is a massive commitment of uh, Seema to marketing, you know, that the, that they were obviously, you know, your work about the sort of the, uh, the, the importance of the household here. I mean, you know, these are remote households and they obviously have decided that they can get some good sales out here from sort of, you know, uh, uh, on, on the farm. So I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm just in awe of seeing this marketing skills and I'm sure somebody, maybe you or whoever, will want us to write something more about sort of their, their marketing techniques in Australia because a lot of this book is, is sort of foundational. I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I mean, literally, it's sort of trying to set the, 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 the basic lines and understanding. So I haven't had a chance to go into the sort of cases. I mean, maybe if I'd written a thousand pages or we'd written a thousand pages, we could have done that. But, you know, we have other things to do in life. Uh, so, so, so I think I'm, I'm hoping that people will say, okay, this is interesting snippet about this company. I want to sort of write something more substantial about Sina or about British tobacco or whatever. So in terms of, uh, British tobacco or the various tobacco companies, uh, it, it seems that Australians smoked a lot, like an enormous amount. So it's not only did they smoke a lot, but Brian to May, the great, uh, uh, match producers, set up a factory in Australia before 1940s. They had matches, they smoked, uh, and they drank a lot as well, which we've come to as another story entirely. Um, and so um, the, basically this was recognised pretty quickly by the overseas tobacco companies. And so you get, by the later 19th century, there's an influx. There are domestic uh, tobacco companies, but the big overseas ones, particularly you know, Imperial Tobacco and American Tobacco, uh, both getting in there into the market. And it becomes a, a massive centre of what I think Howard Cox calls the tobacco wars. And so you start in the 1880s, 1890s, you've got lots of firms, you know, overseas, but local ones. Gradually, they consolidate. And you've got Imperial Tobacco and American Tobacco. And then, of course, you get the BAT uh, forms as well. So all consolidates. Uh, and this is quite interesting as well, because if you come back to this question about, and you mentioned it earlier, earlier um was australia just an extension of the british market and um jeff jones in some of his work has said definitely this was not the case that some, but that some firms were complacent that they did really th thought that all they had to do was the same as they'd done in britain but just on the other side of the world and this clearly wasn't the case that in fact and coming back to my sort of contested multinationalism theme that multinational in australia had to compete with multinationals from other countries. So, you know, the British and American tobacco companies competing with that, competing with quite a robust local manufacturing sector as well. And then also the influence of government, both as an owner of infrastructure and also as a as a as a regulator. So you get, you know, there's a, there's a commission into the uh, a Royal Commission into the tobacco industry at the beginning of the 20th century, which recommends nationalizing the whole industry, which doesn't happen. They said that the judgment that the then government or legal judgment is, yes, it is highly concentrated. Yes, we want to try and increase competition there, but we're not going to nationalise the industry. So, so, so I, you know, I think the whole tobacco story is quite interesting because it represents or indicates all those types of themes. Um, in terms of Australian General Electric, I don't know so much about that. So maybe that's one of the ones that somebody else might work. But there are, it is one of several examples, particularly in new technology industries, where you get a joint venture. And my best bet on some of these joint ventures is that they're sharing knowledge and they're sharing the capital expenditure of going into a country where they're not certain about the benefits that might accrue. So it's very early stage, low risk types of investment. Very interesting. Yeah, I really enjoyed that chapter. So we've talked about 
before 1870, and then uh, we you've already mentioned how it, got, it gets more diversified after 1870, more nationalities come in. Um, perhaps we haven't really uh, expanded on Asia coming into Australia, so maybe this is the moment when talking about after 1870, but before 1914, which um, you mentioned, I have the quote, um, in 1914, at least 466 foreign co- firms conducted their business in Australia, of whom um, 40, 445 had arrived after 1870. Um, what's the experience of Asian uh, foreign firms in Australia? And if you, of course, want to say more about other um, nationalities here as well for the period after 1870, that's... Yeah, sure. So, look, the Asian presence was pretty small. Um, so there were some uh, Japanese wool buyers. I think I mentioned earlier some of the trading companies like Mitsui and um, Kanematsu. So there were three or four of those that were mostly trading in wool, but also general trading and exporting of, of Australian sort of products. Um, apart from that, I think there's one Hong Kong company that was an insurance firm. I haven't quite established whether they were really just a British company based in Hong Kong or whether, you know, quite what the sort of government's relationship was. So the 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 Asian multinational story really is a 20th century story. But, you know, obviously in gathering the data for 1914, wherever there's companies, we're going to identify them, of course. So I've talked a bit about the French and Germans. I've talked a bit about the Americans. Uh, there are also some New Zealand companies as well, and they're mostly in banking, such as the Bank of New Zealand. Uh, insurance, but particularly shipping, there's United uh, Steamship Company, which is a New Zealand company, and the New Zealand Shipping Company, who who both trade with Australian trade, sort of broader internationally. So, you know, uh, this, uh, New Zealand's very much uh, more so than Australia, a primary resources, wool, etc., and services type economy. So some of those company, bigger companies went to Australia, but more common was Australian companies investing in New Zealand, and also, in some cases, you get um, British companies that invest in Australia and then onward invest from Australia into New Zealand. So there's some quite interesting stories there. Um, the other thing that we haven't spoken that much about, and this sort of both pre and post-1870 are the freestanding companies as a, as a whole. So as we know, the famous concept developed primarily by Mira Wilkins about freestanding companies and what they are. There are papers to be written there that we obviously couldn't get into the book. Uh, what we do know is that there are a lot of freestanding companies in Australia. Uh, they conform to many of the things that Mira has said, that they often were just in Australia. They were just banks in Australia. They were just um, mining companies. They were just urban transport companies and those sorts of things. So there's a lot of those. Some of them, well, I think a lot of them don't survive into the 20th century. And I think, again, that's quite consistent with what Mira has said in terms of they don't have the governance structures. And sometimes they're just there for a specific purpose. They're out there for a mine, the mine runs out, they stop. Uh, or they're, um, they're involved in setting up some sort of urban infrastructure, which then sort of, you know, becomes um, self-sustaining or utilities, which uh, Australian uh, state governments tend to acquire in the 1920s and 1930s. So that, so that whole freestanding company uh, issue that I think uh, we could look at uh, more. But but there's also an interesting aspect of it why I think we could have more work done on that. And that is 
the critics of freestanding companies say that really they are local companies of, in the host economy that have simply gone to London or wherever to try and raise money. And in that, you know, where does control lie? In that sort of scenario, it means they're really not multinational companies. And, you know, it's difficult sometimes to make the distinction where is the company, you know, this migrating multinational thing, but where does control lie? And there's a, there's a big story about control in 19th and 20th century Australia, a gradual movement from control from London, if you like, to control in Australia, even if it's still technically a British company. Uh, so, so these are quite complex stories. And we certainly know that in some cases, it's a really moot point as to whether it is actually an Australian or a British company. And you might get quite often mining companies that are initially set up by a group of prospectors in Australia, often originally British settlers. And there's another question about, do, do British settlers represent multinationals or are they just locals? But they come up, they might set up a mining company and then run out of capital. And a British mining company or a, a group of entrepreneurs in Britain might see an opportunity there. So they offer to establish it as a, as a limited liability company and put the money into it. And so it's sort of effectively mostly owned and operated in London. But really the initiative for the company in the first place and its origins are Australian and that might still have an Australian board that has a say in it. So, so, you know, we come back again to what, you know, ostensibly might be a simple concept. The multinational is a firm operating in more than one country. In practice, it's incredibly complicated. Uh, so, yeah, that there's the, the, so I think, you know, um, there's also a whole series of intermediary relationships where the firm is not either domestic or multinational. We tried to give some examples of that in in chapter three, I think it is, where companies have um, board representatives in London, but they are not necessarily a British company that they're sort of they're owned in Australia, but they have advisors in London they have you know sort of a branch and so forth in London so you've got that that sort of uh, intermediary structure which is neither multinational nor a domestic company so there's lots of really interesting stories and and obviously they'll never all get answered and obviously with the tyranny of distance the communication problem is big so where does real power responsibility etc lie in that sort of complicated situation and I'm sure your sort of knowledge of Latin America and so forth, I'm sure that that is a similar story for companies all over the world, particularly where there's been a, a, a historic colonial or neo-colonial relationship. Yeah, going back to that empire and business relations, I just, I just remembered what class was that? It was with Michael Miller and he was working on his book, um, Europe and the Maritime World, that's exactly what you're talking about. Is is this a multinational or not? But in fact, they were operating worldwide, representing firms, uh, and and creating this trade and uh, commercial and multiple other connections that uh, that really can be or should be told as part of the mm-hmm. history of multinationals. Mm-hmm. Um, Perhaps, uh, but that's <laughs> that's a, I mean that's a very interesting debate that we can continue and. Definitely, um, Mira Wilkins, I think, will appreciate this um, this debate that, and that it continues uh, to spark this debate, her books, definitely. So to start our wrapping up the conversation, uh, at many points in the text, and this is kind of the one of the challenges of working on international business history, is how incomplete sometimes 
the information is or appears to be. Perhaps that's all we have. Um, and so tell us a little bit about how, what are the challenges of researching global business history in for this first era of globalization in for the case of Australia? Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that question. I mean, as we know, it's the historian's challenge all the time to sort of assemble data and information from various sources. We're not sort of the modern economist that just downloads the data set from some public source or whatever. And this, this you know, this has classically been the case for this for this book that we started off, David and I started off uh, writing an article for Business History Review, which I think just came out a couple of years ago, but was sort of written four or five years ago. And that assembled, because we just wanted to know a bit about multinationals before 1914, that was assembled from various sources. Then after a while, we thought, actually, there are quite a few different sources, quite a lot of information here. We can't compact this into eight to 10,000 words. So we then started looking for more. And I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. It's all these fragmented bits you pull from 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 different sources, and you have to construct your, me- your methodology around what you have. So, you know, one of the significant things about the methodology here is we use, we look at firms in two different ways. So there's the there's the pre-1870, where we're just looking at the date that they're formed. So how we're formed in 1840, 1850, blah, blah, each year. But when we get to, to the sort of later part of the period, it's very difficult to know what firms are in, are in existence. It's much more difficult in many ways to trace non-British firms because we don't have the sort of board of trade figures and all of that sort of stuff for Britain. So instead, we did a cross-section. So the latter stuff... Only looking at post night, anything after 1870, which was still in existence in 1914, and the main reason we did that was because we came across this publication by a uh, a, um, a business journalist, I guess, uh, in uh, had a series of volumes. But in 1914, it's basically a list of, of of companies in Australia with foreign investments. So basically, essentially multinationals, or we had to make a judgment which ones were multinational. But anyhow, we got this list for 1914. And so that that gave us a lot of that. But we knew that all the firms weren't in this. We knew it was predominantly British firms that they were talking about. And so that if we just took that one, that was going to bias our source. So we had to go looking in all sorts of different places for information about non-British firms. And there were some American sources we were able to locate. There were some publications. We used newspapers a lot. Uh, but also we found that in the 1890s, some of the um, Australian state governments wanted to know more about firm, foreign firms that were registered in Australia. And so that then they set up this foreign firms had to register. I think it starts in 1897 in Victoria and 1907 in New South Wales. So then we start getting all the other firms apart from the British ones. So we get, you know, one of the really interesting ones for me is that Ford was in Australia before World War One. And it's like, this doesn't sound right because we know they first started putting together cars in Geelong in 1925. But in fact, what they were doing in 1999, I think they arrived or something like that, uh, they were basically assembling flat pack cars and they were marketing and, and doing all that sort of stuff, which is, a, you know, a just a story. You know, when we saw that page in the registry, you know, you use primary archives and just suddenly come across a, a nugget. It's like, my God, that is Ford. What is Ford doing here in 1908? It just had a branch. It just had an office in the centre of Melbourne. And then it had all these, you know, dealer networks, basically. Some of them were sort of, well, most of them weren't Ford owned then, but they had a relationship with Ford. Uh, and so that, you know, that sort of story was a really exciting one and we sort of could add to our. So we then had a story about non, um, 
non-British companies in Australia as well. And the Ford one, just to sort of diverse for one one moment, the Ford one was really interesting because it wasn't Ford uh, Detroit that was there. It was Ford of Canada, which, of course, is, a, I mean, I think um, Mira and I've forgotten the Canadian guy's name have a sort of bit of a disagreement about the relationship between the two parts of the company. But... Um, Basically, you know, Ford of Canada were using it in order to jump tariff barriers in the British Empire, which is sort of, you know, a really smart thing to do as well. So, you know, that that's uh, and so so with all those different sources, you know, as you know, you have to design your methodologies around what you've got. You have to accept that there are gaps there. You have to accept that sometimes when you read something from a newspaper, you can't be absolutely sure whether they're operating as a multinational, whether they're using an agent, you know, that whole entry mode thing of. Is it an agent? Is it a? Is it actually branch or whatever? You know, you have to make you have to make um, judgment calls in the end. And what we try to do is take the attitude: is that if there's doubt, we'll just leave it out. Because I mean, while we're making case for the importance of multinationals in you know pre nineteen forty in Australia, we don't want people to think we've jumped on any firm that just looks like it might be a multinational. We need some evidence that it actually had a branch here, not that it just had agency or had products that were being sold by somebody else. So, yeah, it's the historian's challenge to, to use what we've got to try and tell a story. Very interesting. Thank you so much. So last question, and I always ask this question to the people I have the pleasure to interview, is what is your current research on? And I, you've mentioned before that you're working on the second volume of this um, project. And while you tell us about your research, how do you think this first period of um, foreign foreign investment and foreign uh, operations in Australia kind of shaped the, the what came after? Yeah, sure. So uh, th- th- thanks. So uh, as, as I mentioned earlier, one of the things I'm doing at the moment is uh, four of us working on a, uh, a 20th century history of multinationals in Australia. And it does make a big difference because without the 19th century book, we would have sort of assumed that we were starting from zero or close to it, when clearly we're not. We're, we're carrying on a story. And the story, the issue about American firms being here with sales branches and Singer and others, of course, uh, gives us a sort of a continuity thing that also I think it works for the IB literature as well. It is, you know, if firms do go through different entry uh, uh, stages of their production, uh, what drives you know and what, what conditions and so forth so you know we can say with Ford or General Electric or whatever or Singer that they were here before 1914 uh, in a you said there's a pre-story basically that which was were building on uh, in the 20th century and also it's you know it's interesting in following through what happened to freestanding companies why did some of the some of the banks survive but most of the other freestanding companies so again if you don't have the 1914s truncated you're just getting the end of a much longer story basically so, so hopefully, um, you know, and 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 the the the, the diversification of of our home uh, nations that provide multinational. I mean, you know, enormous number of nations from around the world have multinationals in Australia now. We would have missed. We again, we wouldn't have got the whole story if we hadn't talked about how British it was before eighteen seventy. How it was beginning to change before nineteen fourteen, and how the change progresses further afterwards. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Um... Simon, for this very insightful interview. Thanks, Paul. I really appreciate you taking the interest in my book and great questions. To everyone, this is the Economic and Business History Channel of the New Books Network. Today, we have 
talked about the book International Business in Australia Before World War I, Shaping a Multinational Economy, written by Professor Simon Beale and David Merritt. Thank you for listening.